Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. Hi everyone, I'm Aaron Noon and welcome along to another edition of the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Doric, suppliers of window and door hardware to homes and apartments across Australia, New Zealand and Asia. This week we are chatting to the top banana, Queensland's favourite son, Tricky Dicky himself, the legend that is Dick Johnson. Now we're working on a limited edition book covering 40 years of cars produced by Dick Johnson Racing and DJR Team Penske, which by the way, you can pre-order now at AuthenticCollectibles.com or if that's a bit too hard, go to the V8 Sleuth website, click on the store link, and that will take you there. Will Dale and I actually recently popped into DJR Team Penske headquarters to spend some time with the icon himself, the multiple touring car champ and Bathurst 1000 winner. And we thought we'd bring you along with us as we chat about some of the cars that played a big part in his legendary career. Once again, another big thank you to all our V8 Sleuth Facebook followers for your couch racer questions. They turned up some cool stuff, actually, so listen out for Dick's answers to those a bit later on. So, here we go. Buckle up, it's time to start. Dick Johnson on the V8 Sleuth Podcast, powered by Doric. Dick, thanks for sitting down with us. We've got a lot of ground to cover here on the V8 Sleuth Podcast. It's hard to know where to start, but we're working on a book with you at the moment, telling the history of every car from DJR and DJR Team Penske. It's about 50 bloody cars. Is that all? That's, that, that's all. Yeah, yeah. We're going to have to cram them all in. So we're starting with the the true, the first XD, the, the famous car that, that hit the rock. Um, for those who don't know, that didn't start its life as a race car per se like they do now. What, what, what did that start its life as? Where did you find that Look, car? It's a, it's a, it's a quite a real story. The, the, the actual car itself was a 302 automatic. <laughs> which was a, a highway patrol car up round Maribara. Yeah, uh, Queensland Maribara, yeah, not yeah, Victoria. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the real Maribara. And, uh, Are we going to get into state wars already? We're one minute <laughs> no, in here. <laughs> you, you're talking XD days now. Yeah. And uh, the, the car came, well, the deal I did after uh, the end of 79 when Brian Burt Ford said, well, like, you know, we're, we can't continue because Brian died... Um, the previous year in 1978, um, on the 10th of, uh, of October, which was the week after Bathurst, uh, which I think became fifth in that particular race, which he was very, very pleased about. And uh, he was in America at the time and unfortunately died on a plane coming back from the US. And uh, John Harris, who took over Brian Burt Ford or bought it along with a couple of partners, said that uh, I said to him, I said, look, you know, obviously um, I think the XD could be a winning car and, and I want to continue on. And I said to Jilly, I said, look, I said, we can do one of two things here. I said, I can hang up my helmet and uh, never ever race again and we'll concentrate on the business, which we had a shell servo at Gabba. I said, otherwise we can mortgage the house and we'll uh, just... All in, all in. <laughs> all in, you yep. know, we, we can, I, I reckon we can win in this car because I think it's a good vehicle and I can do a deal with Brian Burt Ford or John Harris to, 
to buy all the the bits off, and he'll supply me with a with an XD. Um, and I said, if we do that, I said you'll live with the happiest man in the world because I enjoy my racing. And I said, and other than that, we can just go the other way and get the business and get it all working. I'll be the most miserable prick you've ever met, you know. So. <laughs> Anyway, as it turned out, she made the right decision, <laughs> and and the car that was supplied was this three hundred two automatic sedan. So, did you have to go and buy this at an auction, or did you? No, Harris bought it at an auction, and the deal was that he'd give me the two door Falcon, the, the race car, the yeah. race car, and and all the bits and pieces that they had there, all the spare parts, spare engines, and all that stuff, and I paid a a figure for it, which how much was was the house? Right. <laughs> no, it was about thirty five grand or something. Yeah, which is a fair bit of money in nineteen eighty. Well, yeah, it's a lot of money, you know. Yeah. And um, and I'd put together this car in the garage at home, and I think um, we can do some good with it. And and the the thing was that I had to return the two door Falcon to him with the three hundred two automatic in it. So the bits from the auction car went in the old race the, car. Yeah, it went into the into the uh, into the old race car, and he uh, sold that as a second hand car. Mm. Uh, you know, we took the roll cage out because roll cages then were were just bolt in mm. bits of aluminium. Mm. You know, and uh, the way things turned out, he uh, he ended up buying the thing back, traced it many years later, and and built it back into a into what it was mm. back in 1979. And, mm. But that's where the XD came from. And straight away when you <laughs> rolled it out, did you think, I was right, I was onto something here? This is What made it so good, that XD, as, as a, in the rules at the time? And, and well, I saw there was we, – we had a, a round of the championship or a round up here in Queensland at Lakeside and Gary Wilmington had, had built one. And uh, I thought, boy, you know, and – Gary was a, a really, you know, solid competitor who'd been around for many years and and I I actually tried to buy the car off him at Lakeside. Really? So that was your first option? First option, you know. Right. Before, Rather than build your own, yeah, you thought, before, oh, I'll just go yeah, get that one. Before I even um, said to Julie, we're going to do this. So know? we could have had to write about another car here in the history book of DJ. <laughs> well, there you go. Thankfully, <laughs> you didn't buy that car and give us more work. <laughs> Correct. But, um, yeah, so... When I saw that thing run at Lakeside, I said, boy, you know, this thing. And then I watched it on TV when he ran it. Uh, they ran it um, in Tassie at Simmons Plains. And Did you was, not offer enough, by the he, way, or did he just say, I don't want to sell? No, he just said he didn't want to sell it. Yeah, so right. I said, fair enough, I'll build my own. Yeah. And, and as things progressed, we just uh, built this car at home, and the first race I had with it, all it had was Brian Burt Ford on the part of the deal was to have Brian Burt Ford on the the rear quarter, which I did, and uh, I ran it at Lakeside at a, a normal meeting there. We finished the car on, well, it wasn't even finished. We went out there on uh, on the Saturday and <clears throat> for qualifying, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And, and one of the interesting things, um, this computer company, God, what was their name? Um, Facom, mm. which was a, a company. Facom, it Facom. sounds like one of those yeah. 80s boom-bust dodgy was, ones. Yeah. <laughs> and they said to me, you know, if you, break, if you break the lap record, which was held by 
Kevin Bartlett, I think, in the Camaro or something, he said, if you break the lap record, we'll do a sponsorship deal. And That's I, a red rag to a bull. Yeah, and we finished the car on, well, didn't even finish it. It was, we were still wheel aligning the thing on Saturday and, <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. But we went out there and the thing went pretty well. It was just the fact that um, uh, we missed the lap record by a tenth of a second. So No deal. That deal didn't happen. No. So, so we continued on just the way we were, self-funding it, and uh, went to um, the first southern race we had was at the CRC 300 mm. at Amaru. And at this, so th- this car is uh, built, who, who's built this car with you at the time? You've built, you guys have done the engine, you've done yeah. it all yourself. Yeah, Roy, Roy McDonald, who, um, this was my only employee at that point in time. At the servo. No, no, no. no at, this, at, this, at, this, now this the, at home. the racing. Yeah, we, my brother Dave or Dino, he, mm-hmm. uh, I said, here, you, you run the, you run the servo and, uh, and I'll build the car at home with, with Roy, which is what we did. And, and uh, it, our transporter for the first time was a, just a, a Chev truck I had with, uh, that I used to cart the Tirana around on. <laughs> Things have come a little bit of a way since yeah. those days. Um, that Amaru meeting that you mentioned, I think you, you announced yourself there because you'd been off in Queensland <laughs> doing some local stuff. Um, you gave Brock a hell of a scare there. Yeah, he'd, he'd been he just, running in the championship yeah. and he had his Commodore up and running, but then I, I think he got the deal. I mean, he always respected you, clearly, from everything I read of yeah. the period, but he, he mega respected you then yeah. because now he knew he had a fight on his hands. Well, he did, and and I was approached by Tim Pemberton. Do you remember Plastic? Plastic. I worked yeah. for him for a while, oh, yeah. You pulled I escaped, I escaped. <laughs> anyway, he... Um, he said, mate, oh, this is the best thing that ever happened, you know. If you want a hand, you know, we'll give you a hand. Because they need someone to race against. Exactly, yeah. you know, and it was it was good for them. And and the way we were leading the race at Amaru, and if you had seen the pit stops, you're like, they were two minutes something, mm. <laughs> everyone. And it was a two-driver race, but I did it all on my own. Um, Frenchie was there, but... Um, I decided I'd just keep going on my own. No power steering, nothing like that, mate. None of the luxuries. <laughs> and the tyres got pretty burnt, you know, towards the end of the race. And I think Slug was in the car, mm. Johnny Harvey. And and uh, coming down into the stop corner um, on the way out, I probably gassed it too much or something and spun. So um, instead of winning it, I came second. So... Better but, than nothing. Yeah, better than nothing, but we continued on on canvas, you know, so. It doesn't help. At that point, so you've, you've mortgaged yourself up to the mm-hmm. eyeballs, you've spent the money to build the car, you've gone and done some race meetings. So the now infamous Bathurst is about to arrive, but are you at the point of going, we're out of cash here? Can you even get <laughs> to Bathurst? Do you need another little bit of leg up to, to even well, get to we, the grid? we got a little bit from... Uh, here, there, and everywhere, about uh, because Ross Palmer, who came on board with us in a, in a small way at that point in time, um, and we got Kill Rust paints because obviously they used to supply the paint to Palmer Jew Mills, and we went round the circles and got a little bit here and there. And Mike Trigger, Mike, Mike Higgins, Auto Trend was yeah. a because <coughs> he was a TV personality. Mike Higgins and wouldn't know one spare pay wouldn't know a spark plug from from dead set from a a, a a front door you know so uh but his name was on on the uh, 
the auto store and we had that and a few other little bits and pieces that we put together and and uh, we end up getting to Bathurst. And with that, like the car also had, back in the day, there were contingency sponsors so that if you did well in the race... Ah, I forgot this. Yeah, yeah. yeah you would earn a lot of money and... I look back through what was on offer at Bathurst in 1980, and your car had, I think, pretty much every sticker you could probably get. (laughs) Where there was room, mate, there was a sticker. I can tell you (laughs) because because it meant an awful lot, you know. And and when we got to Bathurst, pole position was worth ten grand, which was a lot of money. Ten grand is and a lot of money in 1980. Yeah, and second was worth jack shit. And you, you know, <laughs> you don't want it up. <laughs> so no wonder you had some big ones in the shootout at Bathurst because yeah. there was real reasons to have a go. Yeah, well, you know, and we ended up second on the grid by a couple of tenths or something. Doesn't matter, you got nothing. No, I know. Yeah. And anyway, that was that was only the start of it. But um, what um what technically about that car did you have that was that you were proud of that you'd tweaked and tuned was and I remember that the when it started it didn't have a deck lid rear spoiler but you got that for Bathurst in yeah. 80 um, safety what, reasons what, yeah, yeah. I've got to keep them down you know what, what, what technologically about that car did you have that was different from the other XDs at the time well, that you'd, you'd played with that you thought you could do better yeah well it took them a long time to work it out and it was it was oh whereabouts probably just it was before it was I'd called around in 1981 for the championship. The next they, year? The, the next year that they twigged. You, you were on to a whole other car by then and they only yeah, just Yeah, we were, but, you know, they finally twigged. that They thought that we had a million horsepower, you know. Oh, that car's got too much horsepower. It didn't have a lot of horsepower at all, I can tell you. It, you know, it went, it was significant. It was, it was good enough and uh, wouldn't, wouldn't have been much more than, than what the Commodore had, to be quite honest. But when I read through the homologation papers, it said the weight of the car was 1,260 kilos. I thought, geez, Hmm. that's pretty light. So we worked extremely hard to get the weight down and we got it down to about uh, 1,270 or just, just under 1,270. And... When I worked out, or when I found out, because Ford wouldn't, they, they never did any of the homologation or anything like that. It was all done by uh, cams and uh, and whoever put stuff forward and they'd mm. tick the box. Mm. Because I think it was Bruce Keys or one of these guys that used to do all that. And what was submitted was the weight of a six-cylinder Falcon Ute. And Which you were not going to be racing. <laughs> no, that's what Murray Carter put forward. Bless him. Good, well good done. old Mars. He did a he did a great job, you know, because he was a Ford stalwart for many many years, Murray, and and uh, he he, uh, he he raced an XD and all that as well, and and even the two doors and things, and and uh, and I thought, gee, I'll take advantage of this. So that's when we built the car down to that weight. And it wasn't until, like I said, that meeting at Calder, uh, unfortunately Roy Boy uh, was looking after the car at that point in time and I I knew very well what the situation was. So I I always took, any time we went to scrutineering, the car was absolutely chock-a-block full of fuel. To lift the weight up as high as you could get it to go. And and because I was out doing a promotion, um, I wasn't at church, it was a Sunday morning, but... 
um, Roy Boy took the car to scrutineering and the only circuit that had a bloody way bridge was called up, you know. <laughs> and no fuel in it? And he didn't have any uh, fuel. Uh, he forgot to put the fuel in or, you know. Your secret's exposed. I didn't exposed. tell him to, so. And anyway, they started weighing the cars. And when I got back from where I was, um, there was all sorts of commotion because I think um, Bob Morris by then had sort of built this car with uh, George Shepard um, and the Channel 7 thing and and they put that over the scars. It was 1,860 kilos or something and and I think the closest to me, we, we went over at 1,282 or something and the closest to us was... Um, uh, was Murray Carter's at 1580. So not even close. Not even close. And he was the one who did the homologation yeah, position that, but and they got it better. They, I know that, but they didn't take any advantage of what was there. And, uh, and you know, because there was all rumours around that we'd acid dipped it, we'd done this, we didn't do any of that sort of crap, you know. But I must admit then after the rock deal at Bathurst and Ford decided to step in and give us a bit of a hand and and... Because this on the assembly or the construction of the body shells and that down at uh, Broadmeadows and that, we'd walk down the line, yeah, we want that, no, we don't want that, we want that. All except, the little you know, brackets all, all and the, things that road cars have, but you're just going to have to cut them off or <coughs> yeah, get but, rid of them, so you may as well you, not have them. When you, when you look at it, you know, you put them in a box, mate, they weigh up, they, they end up weighing a fair bit. Mm. Mm. And uh, that's how we sort of did the, the second car, which is still alive today. Yeah, the... The rock is so well told, 1980 Bathurst, you'd have to have been living under a rock not to have ever heard about the story. But um, the thing I'm interested in talking about is the damage to that car because you did build another car, but the 1980 rock car did live on down the track with privateers. But how badly was it damaged? What did it actually do and how bad was it? And then what did you do with it after that? Well, at that point, the thing, the the car twisted the chassis up the front and things like that and... And that's a bit of a major thing. And then when Ford said, you know, we'll sort you out and you can, we'll sell your body shell at the right price, and I thought, well, that's a perfect opportunity because the only part of that car that that um, that we gave away was just the bare, bare body shell. So could you salvage much from it for the next car? Oh, like the engine and all that sort of stuff is fine, but you know, obviously the front suspension was pretty, pretty well gone, but. Um, yeah, the back of it wasn't too bad, et cetera, et cetera. It's just when you get a twisted chassis and you start pulling things straight, um, they end up like butter and they don't work too well. <laughs> and, and when you consider that the roll cages were only just aluminium and I think they were just a roll cage, they weren't a body stiffener mm. too much at all. But mm. uh, So that's why we went down that road. So the... The leftovers of the the rock car were sold and became a privateer car. John Donnelly had yep. that for for a while, and John English <coughs> at the start. Um, and it raced on. Did the pile of Bathurst yeah, after yeah, that yeah. as a red car yeah, later know, on. Yeah. The blue car became a red right. car. Um, but weirdly, that is probably if if we look back at your whole career and you've driven some iconic cars, and they're going to be covered mm. in this new book. Um, that first car is the springboard for everything that really followed. Absolutely. But it is not visible. We don't see it. From my understanding, there's a private collector in Queensland somewhere who's got that car, who bought it when it was finished in Group C and has virtually parked it. Is it a little strange to you that if I had that car or if anyone out there had that car, 
I'd be 17 true bluing it, making it as close as possible <laughs> as I could to 1980 Bathurst and wheeling it out. Is I, it, are you a bit saddened that that hasn't happened well, with that car? I am to a point where I wouldn't mind having it right now because I could put it right beside the rock that mm. took it to that point, mm. you know, and it wouldn't be too hard to restore it back to the way it was, that's for sure. Mm. It's uh Mm, it's, it's puzzling. It's puzzling. Yeah, I, I think yeah. if I had that car, it'd be getting wheeled out like you wouldn't yeah. believe. Oh well, I'll, we'll have a we'll chat make some later calls. On we'll make some, some calls. Yeah, make some inquiries. <laughs> True Blue Two, for want of a better yep. term. Um, so the first one's the the auction car. The second one, though, she's a bit more purpose built for. <laughs> she hasn't had a life before it gets to the racetrack, which is kind of nice. What did you put into that one, parts wise and technology wise? That was better than the one because you always build a better one. But yeah, what was better? Well, you try. Yeah, you know, I think uh, the way it was built because it was a bare shell when we got it that didn't have all the the uh, body deadening and all that sort of stuff on it. All with all the emissions we went down the line, uh, it made it a lot easier to build, and we put a bit more strength into it in a lot of areas. And and uh, I think the main thing was was. The, the the sway bars that we incorporated on it, I think, were uh, were certainly a, a lot better than the other ones. You know, there's not a lot you could do at the front end, although all the pickup points and things like that, even though they... Because um, you were supposed to use all your rubber bushes and things like that. Well, they were rubber on the outside. <laughs> but what were they on the inside? Well, it had, it had sort of rose joint stuff, you know, in... Uh, uni balls and things like that, uh, which gave it, you know, a much better, um, a more positive sort of suspension points, if you know what I mean, mm. rather than rather than mushy old uh, spongy, <laughs> spongy things. And yeah, from there, things grow from there. That point. Uh, we're looking in your office here. There's an amazing Greg McNeil painting of that famous race at Lakeside '81. Yep. It's you leading Brock. Um, Exit of turn two, I think it is coming back. Carousel, Carousel. Yep. Um, that that's one of the best races in uh, probably touring car yep, history. Uh, is it as fresh in your mind today as it was on the day? Absolutely, mate. It was one of those things that um, it's either I was going to go off the road or because on lap two it broke the sway bar, front mm. sway bar, and I'll never forget uh, when. The uh, then Clark, of course, um, West Keith West, I think he's, he's he was the Clark, of course, at that point in time, and the guy who was the uh, he used to start the race, you know, he was the starter and and always the same guy up there, and when you know when you used to start races with with um, with the the national flag, <clears throat> somewhat different to what it is these yeah, days. No, with the no lights. lights. Yeah. It's a guy holding a flag, yeah, drops a flag. Drop it. Yeah. And I always used to go and study the guy starting the race before. I know we're probably diversing here a bit, but <clears throat> I used to always study and go and watch them start every other race, if you know what I mean, just to see. You get a trend. You pick up well, the trend yeah, of how see, quick do they drop it. And, whether his yeah. knee bops or yeah. his elbow <laughs> flitches or something like that. And and uh, anyway, Kenny West, who was the uh, clerk, of course, uh, got a report in from one of the flag marshals saying that um, there was something hanging off 
car 17 out of the front and uh, maybe it should be black flagged. <coughs> and They are in Queensland you, on your home track, by the correct way. Correct, Amundo. Good and, luck. And Kenny West, I think his reply was, if you want to come and be the one to wave the flag, be my guest <laughs> because I wouldn't like to be here after you do that. It wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't be a career move. And, and uh, so I drove the race with no front sway bar and it was a – it was a bit of a fly swat, the car. She was sort of all over the place, but um, that's just the way you, you had to adjust to be able to drive it. And, mm-hmm. and I know I threw a lot of rocks and stones and things at Brock because, you know, I was using every bit of road and some, and um, his car was – his windscreen was trashed. In front of his car was got all bullet holes in because – Probably not many people know that they built a special car for that very race mm. because it came down to the championship. And and it was after they'd realised that our car was lightweighted. And Brock went there with um, with a balance bar set up in the brakes because the brake booster was too heavy and, uh, and all that sort of stuff where we used to use a standard brake booster and the standard braking master cylinders, etc. And... And they even went to the to the point of um, where you could back then. They, he didn't even have a muffler. It was straight through exhaust. <laughs> you, you go to XE, um, but that car went to Alf Grant. So you guys were tied in yep. together there and so you prepped and run it. Tell me yeah. about how that all came to be, well, that, then, that car sold on. Because then my brother, how it worked out, we ended up with my brother was working on Alf's car, Dino. And then Roy worked there for a while as well. It's just sort of when, in 83, when it all started turning around with George Shepherd coming on board, et cetera, et cetera. And, and it was about then when you start to learn about personalities, you know, and, and some work and some don't. But, yeah, but it was still in the same family because we were... It was sort of almost like a satellite Car in it, a way. it was, yeah. it was, because he was my next door neighbour anyway. And so, did you have to approach him, or did he come to you, or no? He or? came to me, you know, and said, you know, because he, he raced, yeah, other cars. He had that uh, Nissan, he had the HR, whatever yeah, thirty one later, yeah. the Sizzler car, later Sizzler on. car, yeah, 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 yeah which is, yeah. I think, there's only one left in Australia now, or something. Yeah, there's a few around, there's a few around. Um, so back in those days, you you built a new car, so you think, oh well, money. Yeah, we don't need this one anymore. We no. need the next one. Yeah, well, so absolutely. Well, that's what had to pay for the the next car, you know. So, mm. so the XE came along, which was a totally different rear end, and uh, that was a bit problematic for a while for wasn't some it? people. What did you do that solved the rear end of the XE to turn it into a well a winner? You you still had to have the original arms, if you know what I mean, the trailing arms in that. One was. A metre long, the bottom arm was about a metre long and the top arm was about a quarter of a metre. So the bump steer would be horrendous and the bind because they got all the... And this is the reason they use rubber bushes because the the binding doesn't happen to the extent it was what it would with uh, solid mountings. And so we got up to our old tricks again where we used the bottom arm which had the rubber bits on the outside and and the um, and the top arms are in there but they had like um, roll cage foam or 
mm. in there, so it, they did absolutely nothing. And in the middle, I had a third arm, so it was a three-link suspension. You couldn't see it. It was, it was legal, mm. but um, it was up um, above, the, above the diff in the top area of the car and nobody could see it, so... So and the, it, it like an absolutely perfect rear end, never never bump steered. It was awesome. The blue car actually became the green car that yep. ended up in the trees in in eighty three. Have you got any parts left from that car? Did you souvenir a door or a yep, Stephen, boot? Or Stephen's a, got the door. He's got one of the doors. Mm-hmm. That'd be worth a bit. Yep, probably worth more than the car at the time versus the dollars of today. Yeah, it's, and it's the genuine door. And, so and the the body shell for those who <coughs> might not know of the wrecked calf that went off the road in the party zero shootout yep. in the trees. I still don't know how he got out of that, by the way. Um, Through the left-hand door. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I should have known. We'll leave you to do the jokes. Yeah. Um, it, it's total. It's bug. Was, was there anything that you could pull off that car at all? A couple of bits, maybe. Um, there was a couple of bits, you know, that were retrievable. Mm. Uh, the engine was okay because we used it the next day. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and yeah, I think some of the rear end parts, mechanical, some of the mechanical bits were good. The, the um, body shelf was pretty sickening. Is it right that it was getting towed back to Queensland and it fell off the trailer? Can you no, tell us? The, we borrowed a trailer to take. This is insult to injury, isn't yeah, it? So, oh, yeah, you know, when you're having a bad weekend, it doesn't seem to stop, but, um, <laughs> it, it sort of got to a point where, we had to get that home and and also the, the well, old Channel 9 car. You, 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 you rolled you up with one car yeah, and you had to take another yeah, car yeah, and exactly, the leftovers yeah. of your other car home. Yeah, was, that so, wasn't in the travel itinerary. No, no, we were just – so we borrowed this trailer off a guy who was generous uh, enough to loan it to us and and uh, one of the guys was towing it home and he didn't even get the orange. Which is all of about half an hour down the road. <laughs> and – he got into a big tank slapper and and fired her off the road and through Farmer Brown's fence and and uh, yeah and rolled the trailer and all that sort of stuff. So that was insult to injury that one and and still the lady still I think chasing me for the fence. <laughs> <laughs> however, however, um, when we got that back to Queensland, we stripped what was left of it out and. Um, and the rest went to Sims Metal, who uh, were were basically they, they had this uh, thing a chop up machine that chopped the uh, were chopping car bodies up into small parts, uh, into small bits of metal to uh, obviously send away as to melt down as metal, you know. So <clears throat> we uh, helped them sort of launch their new piece of equipment by. Putting, putting the body shell of the green stuff, Falcon, through the thing, and we got all the bits and put them into paperweights. And I've seen some of those pop yeah. up for sale every now and then on yeah. eBay, and they go for a pretty handy dollar. Oh, yeah, so. they, and there was quite a few of them. So, so there was never a thought, I guess you don't really think of these things at the time, we'll keep that, well, it's a museum piece, yeah. or it's a this or yeah. a that, it's, a, it's in the way, we can't use it, crush it. Well, nowhere to put it, what no. do you do? no. Um, yeah, mate. If, you know, I suppose everything's twenty twenty vision mm. is you know in hindsight. hindsight's a nice thing, it isn't is. it? 
Yeah, if you, but if you could keep everything, you'd never get the next thing, so you'd never move on. Well, so. you couldn't then. It was it mm. was a way of moving into the next generation. You know? And the next car, which is the, the final green Falcon. So by this stage, where are you building these cars? Where are they being Still put together? Home. Still all in home. In the, Still so you've got Daisy a garage Hill. underneath yeah. the house at Daisy No, Hill. no, I had a garage down the front, which mm. was, you know, a, was a four-car gar- four garage. I had uh, on the end of it was a like a little workshop where uh, <clears throat> uh, it was more of a fabrication room come workshop was a lathe and a milling machine and it's only small mm. you know and and then I added onto that a room next door where I built the engines and diffs and gearboxes <laughs> the race team that's at home yeah and I it's quite funny because you know we obviously it, it was not really within council regulations and that, but, uh, to have that sort of thing. And, and the headmaster of, of uh, John Paul College lived across the road from me, and, which is where our kids went to school. And uh, for him to come over, um, Seth Munn's fabulous family, lovely people, and to come over at midnight one night and he's in his bloody um, jammies and dressing gown, asking if we could keep the noise down a little bit. Running so, up an engine or doing no, no, you no, doing? No, what were you doing? No, Just banging no, away and crashing probably, away? Probably, yeah, you know, fabricating something. <laughs> Some and, crazy uh, hour yeah. in the morning. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it was No, it was a great little workshop we had there and, and uh, it was after that, I think, in uh, 90... No, it was 80... 84... I think 84, we ended up, where we went to the Mustangs, we went over into uh, to Acacia Ridge. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. Just to finish off with the the XE, so you only you build a brand new car yep. that was only good for one year because the rules changed. So uh, other people's Group C cars got sold, or they got bastardised into sports sedans, or they took what they could get for them. But clearly, that car was never going to no, go anywhere. It you, was, you were going to keep that one. Yeah, it was pretty special because when you when you have a look at it, it was a uh, absolute unbelievable looking car with the 19 inch wheels on the back that were 14 inches wide and and the, the tough looking flares on it with the mm. the rear spoiler which was like an astro and a motorbike pretty useless but <laughs> but anyway it was a good looking car and it had comfort, didn't it? It did. It had the the lovely sheepskin covers on the seats. Because <laughs> you do anything for a gig, won't you? Skinnies, skinnies, sheepskin covers were my. Uh, they approached me and, and uh, said, "You know, would you do this?" And I said, "Yeah." So sure. part of the deal was that not just carry the sign, but you got to use the gear in the race car. Exactly. And I've driven the car since, and it's still got the seat, the sheep's uh, sheepskin covers there, and like. They're getting pretty old now too, <laughs> and it was like K-pop coming out everywhere. You're getting a mouthful of bloody wool every time you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't think we're going to see a uh, yeah. another championship-winning car in the supercars. Uh, 
It's it's a one and only. Well, it was it's the only sheep skin helped. sea cover. It didn't sweat as much on them. Well, no, it's true. They're yeah. very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It served its purpose. Good in winter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> good in summer. Good in winter. <laughs> good all around. Um, we talk about mustangs. One of the things we want to cover off in in the book is you got you went and got two from the the Zaxby guys Zaxby, in, in Germany, yeah. and you kept one up your sleeve during that first year to use as your, your Bathurst car. Correct. But you had Larry Perkins come along. He'd yeah. left Brock. Um, and Moffat, Alan Moffat, everyone forgets this. He drove one of your cars that weekend for television for Channel Seven as yeah. a TV story, where he drove all the different cars because he was out of a gig. Mazda had pulled out yep. of the sport. Was there ever a chance that you could have been lured into letting that second car run the race at Bathurst because Larry qualified it, and then you just you always yeah, then after, just, you learnt your lesson a few years earlier where you, you always entered two cars there for a little while, or you had a T. Well, car you had a T car. That's when yeah. when you're allowed to have a T car and. And we thought we'd just take the Mustang there as it was, um, just to see what the difference was between the the uh, XE and the uh, and, and the Mustang, mm. where the disparity was. Whether you know it was a great little handling car, um, but just lacked straight line speed. You mm. know, and that's one area that we concentrated on from that point on. Mm. Was there ever a chance in that next year when Moffat drove that car? I think there's some stories around that he could have ended up racing it, or was there never a chance you're going no, to race it? One? Well, never even a thought came through my mind. Right, debunk that one, yep. cross that off the list. Um, uh, 85, a bit of a Bathurst that get gets away. The Jags were fast and they were the, the form cars, but... Uh, I think you had a loose wheel when Larry got in at some stage and could that have been one that got away that people don't really think about too much? Yeah, mainly through, like I said, consistency and reliability. You know, Larry didn't like the fact that the the old used to get a fair bit of oil surge because you had a wet sump and it was, you know, all... And <laughs> everything that comes out of America isn't great, I can tell you, because when we first got that car... Um, it had Jack Roush engines, built engines in it. And so I thought, oh, well, that came with the dyno sheets. Yeah, that looks pretty reasonable. 337 horsepower or something. So I ripped one out and we chucked it on our dyno. It had 265. That's a letdown. And I thought, boy, you know, we got... This is up against it a bit, but anyway, we um, we put our heads down and when we looked at the engine and thought, my God, this thing is so illegal. It's not <laughs> funny. It had Chev rockers in it. It had steel crank. It had all sorts of things. If you're going to have cheating bits in it, it should be making big grunts. Jesus Christ, what are we going to do here, you know? <laughs> and with all this... Good stuff. It had 268 horsepower. Imagine if it didn't have that good stuff in it. So anyway, as it turned out, we um, we put the thing back to where it was legal with the, all the rockers and things like that. And then they had heating problems. And we found out big time at, um, at Winton about mm. the heating. And that was the first end- round. It was really hot, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. And I ended up with the fire truck coming over, hosing the radiator down for me. <laughs> But then, then I realised that they had the, the water going the wrong way and the block and it was just... Anyway, we sorted that out pretty quick. But the one thing um, that they had 
and I couldn't change it because I couldn't afford to buy all new crankshafts and everything. And it it was internally balanced, which, you know, doesn't mean much to many people, but it means that the engine was balanced internally, like there was no external weights mm. like they had on the flywheel and the, and the, uh, and the harmonic balancer. And uh, I think it might have been old Frank Lowndes sort of sussed out that this thing was internally balanced. And here we are at um, Calder again. Calder. <laughs> what is it about you and Calder? Uh, and Roy, Roy and I are there. There's only the two of us. And they said, okay, we want, we want the harmonic balancer off that car, right? Because clearly obvious whether it's been internally balanced or not. So Roy thought, shit, what are we going to do here? So what we did is we we had a scrutineer with us, you know, who who was um, there observing while we had to pull this harmonic balancer off, where I'm going so slow, it's not funny. Roy's out the back, our truck, which had a... 351 winds in, like... Yeah, keep going. He's pulling the bloody harmonic balancer off our truck, right? And and he finally gets it off. And uh, (laughs) he comes in with a bucket of water, right, with with the harmonic balancer in. And he says to me, here, you'll, you'll, you'll need to drop it in here because it'll be too hot. You won't be able to hold it. So underneath the car goes this bloody bucket full of water. And, and we, a harmonic balancer. And, and a harmonic balancer. And I pulled oh, and it dropped into the bucket and sort of old mate standing there to, ready to take this part away. We pull it out, pull it in. Pull the one from the truck out of the bucket, and which is stone motherless coal, like you wouldn't believe, and greasy, and they give it to this bloke and say, "Here, take it away." And Frank Lowndes come back and said, "Yeah, right." And Good just try. gave it back to us. <laughs> <laughs> you know, at Bathurst it was just unfortunate. The thing just didn't have the steam in a straight line. But oh, we went pretty well in New Zealand with it. Uh, when it was a JPS car. I was going to say, so was that, that a, was it a repaint job? Or yeah, a, yeah, yeah, repaint, yeah. <laughs> Neville Crichton did all of that and and uh, went over there and it, it ran really good in, you know, in the uh, street race at Wellington mm. until the front hub had this big bolt through the front hub. It came loose mm. and so we pitted and just the quick thinking of Dino, got the rattle gun, put the right socket on it, and because it was a bolt and a nut, mm. and it just it hooked up and it tightened, and we smoked on regardless. <laughs> Could have gone very wrong, but worked out all right. Uh, uh, and those those Mustangs. Um, so one went to Perth. Uh, one so went to e- Perth. Ian Love. Yeah, and one one went to New Zealand. Um, and you went and drove that one in New Zealand soon after, but it didn't go too good, did it? Oh, well, I got punted by buddy, actually Tony Longhurst. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But, yeah, that was um, 
the guy that brought it over there is a really, really nice guy. It's Robbie and, Kerr. Yeah, Robbie yeah. Kerr. He's a ripper bloke. And, um, yeah, so they rebuilt it and uh, and he, used to, he still ran it. Mm. He, he ran still it ran over it. there and yeah. it eventually got restored and yeah. came back around. And, and the one that um, Ian Love had, he raced in Perth. He raced in and Perth. And his sons are racing now in Porsches in he Carrera is, Cup. and doing extremely well, both yeah, his sons. Yeah, Jordan's yeah. in Carrera Cup and Aaron's yeah. in the GT3 GT3. Cup. It's, and, sort of uh, and then it was bought by that guy, Herney. Mm-hmm. Stayed in Perth for a, a fair while. And yeah. then I think it got a bit sports sedan with some flares. Yeah, he did. And well, some... I sold him the spare engine out of the X, XE. They uh, put the Cleveland in it. Right. Ah, now we're learning yeah. some extra yeah. bits. Yeah. You would have loved to have done that in Group A and oh. <laughs> that engine. Yeah, nice, yeah. It's a couple of years too late. Yeah, so we did that and he um, he ran it over there in sports sedan and that. Uh, John Herney, mm. and uh, then he sold it to another some other guy, and and then when Howard Marsden became the the lead man in the, the Ford Motorsport here, uh, he um, he said, I think because we had the other cars here like the XE and that, mm. and he said, I think we we need to get that car back, so he went and bought it for us. So. Ford bought you mm. back your Mustang. Mm. We didn't know that, really. Mm. Wow. Yeah, and that's the car that's still in. Oh, it's floating yep. around between Bowdens and here. Yep. And yep, it's oh, cool. Huh. Wow. So Howard, Ford, Howard Ford Marsden, was good to you. Howard, Howard Marsden and you know guys like him and and uh, Peter Gillitzer from Ford mm. and that they were fantastic people. Wow, and they they decided to do that. You didn't yep. even ask. They just yep. said we're going to go and sort yep. that out for you. Yeah. Wow. Wish someone would buy me a car. Yeah. That'd be well, great. That'd be great. I I have no idea what was. Yeah, you know, well, they paid for it, you know. Look, you you probably think I'm a bit flippant, but at the end of the day, I was just focused on on driving the car. I, mm. I didn't give a real no, about any of that sort of no stuff. No one's you thinking ahead to what a car no, might be I, worth. Yeah, it's, no, I, it's in the way. It's and not they fast. never used to be. Like you, no. you could have bought all the old cars for for a song back then. Mm. Mm. But uh, yeah, we. Obviously, uh, didn't read the future too well, did it? <laughs> if only, if only. Um, Sierras, I think the obvious question is the one you're going to ask to start with, aren't you? That's Will? correct. So, big budget shell, two cars for 1987 oh. turbos. Why was one right-hand drive and the other one left-hand drive? I've always wondered this too. All the ones in Europe and that were left-hand drive and... and we just wanted to find out which was the better way to go because we could run either, you know. Mm. So uh, uh, Harry Hansford ran the left-hand drive one and I drove the right-hand drive did one. Did you toss a coin for it or did you, you, pick, you were the boss, you picked what Didn't you wanted? Didn't matter, mate. We both had a bit of a skid in both. There was no difference, you mm. know. Never, ever, ever out of all the years and even currently today were ever two cars different mm. except for personal setup. Mm. But no car ever had anything better than the other car. And uh, so Harry Hansford drove the left-hand drive, which he'd been driving. I think the Mazda had been driving was left-hand mm. drive and all that. So fine. Made sense. He didn't care. Mm. So that first year with the Sierras, like it was a tough run through the Touring Car Championship, team's first turbo car. Had a win in Adelaide. But then the Enduros come, Bathurst, Sandown Bathurst, the RS500 package turns up what was the like how how did that feel 
different to drive the first time you put that on? I was <laughs> night and day. When you had a look at the size of the turbo on the on the RS Cosworth, um, it was just it was a pity little thing you'd put on your generator, you know. <laughs> so, um, but the RS five hundred came and it had a it's a big TA four. It was a you know a decent sized turbo, etc., etc. But we blew. I think. Um, Maybe we're trying to stretch it too far, which obviously we were. With the RS, we blew something like forty-five or forty-six turbos or something <laughs> in you know in less than a year. Oof. And um, and then when the RS five hundred came in, well, that's when we really started to pick up. And we had no experience with them at all. Um, the biggest problem I had is when I went to England to uh, buy some bits for it off Andy Rouse. It didn't go good, did it? It, you gave him a character reference, didn't you? I gave him an extremely good one at that point in time um, <laughs> where I had my wife with me and and we were sitting in with him because every time you wanted to sort of have a bit of an upgrade power-wise, you know, you say, mate, no, we just want to see if we can sort of um, send a chip over and you're going to give us more power. And he's, by the way, there's another uh, couple of thousand quid, you know, and uh, you'd get the thing back and there was a bee's dick in it. That's about it. Probably put a two, de- two degrees of timing in it or something like that. And we got a bit sick of this and I said, Chili, uh, I said, I'm going to just tell him that we want, um, see if we can buy the equipment off him so we can do our own management system, you know. And he was running this, the management system, which was a, what was it? The Zytec system. Mm, yeah. Zytec. And he had he had the sole distributorship or whatever, or rights to utilise the, the Zytec system. Anyway, I went in and I, after buying all these bits off him, which was you know a considerable amount of money. I said, mate, I need um, I need to be able to sort of do my own engine development, and, and I want to sort of buy the equipment to sort of adjust the Zytec. And because Zytec wouldn't give it to us, they said, oh, you got to go and see him. So we did. And he said, no, no, he said, I can't sell you that. He said, that's my stuff and, you know, I'm licensed for it, etc." And I said, well, it's a bit hard, you know, coming backwards and forwards and getting a very slight upgrade every time. I said, we need to be able to do our own stuff. He said, no, no, he said, I won't sell it to you. I said, well, you can go and get fucked, mate. I said, that's, you know, to me, I said, that's it and I... At that point, I got up and walked straight out of the, the thing and I walked outside and I said to Jilly, I said, oh. I said, I think we're screwed because, you know, I don't have an option. <laughs> and then uh, somebody put this guy, John John Evans, I think it was, from, from Ford. He was a Ford motorsport guy in the UK. Mm. And he said, oh, he said, go and see this guy, Barney, Alan Barnes. He said, um, he sells a lot of parts and that, and he was starting to get into business, et cetera, et cetera, um, selling bits and pieces to rally cars and all that stuff. So I went and saw him, and he said, oh, there's a guy I know by the name of Graham Dale Jones. He, he works contract for Ford. And he does all their their boss management systems and 
and running the rally cars, which were those mm. RS200, you know, mm. those mm. absolute rocket ships. Mm. And he also was doing um, a, a Cosworth V8, you know, the old Cosworths mm. uh, V8, in a, in a Pikes Peak car. As you do. Yeah. <laughs> and he said they were running two NP1.2 uh, management system, one for each bank. <laughs> so I thought, Jesus, you must know what you're doing. You know? And Barney said, go and see him. So I did. And uh, he said, yeah, I'll help you out. He said, we'll put you on the Bosch system. I said, that's me. And uh, so we had our own Bosch system and and tried all that sort of stuff. And I said to Graham Dale Jones, I said, you better come out. We'll get you out to Australia so you can show us how to work. He said, oh, I've got to go to Pikes Peak. I said, well, come back to Australia on your way home, <laughs> which he did. And uh, we went through the whole thing and we put in a basic map and, and mapped out one engine, you know, just roughly, and he showed us how to operate it, et cetera. This, at this point, I had Neil Lowe with us. And, and uh, so we started doing our own development and then... As time went on, they came out with the uh, MP1.4, which was the much greater upgraded version because the one, the early version, the 1.2, was uh, like if if it looked like raining, you know, it'd cough and fart and do all sorts of things. It was it was very temperamental, but um, with with the Aussie ingenuity and that and a, and a bit of mucking around, we sealed it all up and and overcame most of those problems and and. Anyway, we went on to the 1.4 and that's when we really started to, to develop these things and, and make some power. Like those little engines, only two-litre, four-cylinder, they flat out on the dyno, we used to run them in without the turbo hooked up, and flat out they had um, 90 horsepower, mm. full tilt. <laughs> and you'd hook up the turbo and give it 2.4 bar a boost, it had 680, you know, so... <laughs> But Is that the most to, you ever screwed out of one of them? Yeah, but it used to come on like a light switch and, you know, the turbos have come a long, long way in, in recent times and, and gee, you know, if, if only we had that sort of stuff then, that would be a rocket ship. I'd love to rebuild a Sierra now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. No. All those, all those years of struggling with a Mustang with horsepower, what was it like to roll up to Sandown 587? RS500, plenty of horsepower, and just blow people away down the straights. <laughs> just, He's that. smiling. Yeah. He's smiling. It was amazing. And probably the most memorable race for me in the Sierra was when Moff ended up with the Rudy Eggenberg one, you know, the, the, ANZ, the hot, car. ANZ car, the hot rod German man who knew everything about everything and and uh, had all, all the buddy Ford's... Um, motorsport money, like he was the one who was the, the guru. And this was at Adelaide International Raceway. And Bowie and I were running one, two. Yeah, as you did a lot that year. Yeah. And I'll never forget this, and I can still see the face of Moff now as we put a lap on him and drove past him like he was stopped. <laughs> going down the straight at Adelaide Raceway. Just smoked him and I could see the steam coming out of his ears. You know. <laughs> and later that year, you went and took on Eggenberger 
over in Europe and took on Rouse. And they're all still salty. Yeah. Man, I've read quotes from people from those days saying, your thing was bent, it was a charity, you retired it deliberately. No. Go on, set the record straight. No, no, definitely. No, it was just as we run it. And we were, Australia was more vigilant about the rules and regulations and, and the way they were policed here than anywhere else in the world. Because they had, what was that little fat bloke who was the... Marcel Marcel Savayas, yeah. Marcel Marceau, I used to call him. (laughs) (laughs) um, Yeah, they were, like those cars were so bent with with their mud guards and all that sort of stuff. I don't know what their engines were like, but we were dead set straight up and down. And and the car that we had in, in 92 was unbelievable. It was a great car. But... Engine-wise and that, we were, we used to think outside the square. Uh, we wouldn't, we didn't take that much notice of the, uh, of the, the map of the, the turbo where it became, you know, inefficient when you got to a certain point. We'd sort of go outside that and run more boost than we should and things like that. But, but it, it really worked because I'll never forget going to England and, the best part about what we had there was the nine-inch diffs that we made here in Australia through Ronnie Harrop. And and that really helped immensely because, you know, they were unbreakable and they still are today. Mm. And when we got there, we went testing on the Wednesday or the Tuesday or something before the race at Silverstone, the old Silverstone. Mm, the, 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 fast, the real, yeah, real like Silverstone, now. no. But we were testing there and there was this tent over the other side with like a little and a you know how the Formula One guys used to have with the with the bloody canvas roof over the top and somebody sitting in there like an official tent and uh, it was one of Ergenberger's bloody guys checking what times we were doing timing every single oh, lap we oh, did. on the test day yeah and I think they got a fright because you know when we got there to to, to race, we qualified, I don't know, second and a bit in front of them, mm. which was, we thought was pretty cool. And uh, and one of my favourite photos is that one going down Hangar Straight, mate, with two Eggenberger cars about 150, 200 metres behind and, and then a Roush car and then another Eggenberger car. It just... You're grinning. You are yeah, grinning. It's good fun. <laughs> it's like taking cold in Newcastle, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Where'd the idea for that trip start? Was that honestly? I think it was an ego trip more than anything else. And the opportunity came when Ross Palmer, who was releasing a new product, uh, was going to um, release it in in the UK, and uh, he said, "Oh, he said I'll." tip in so much we can get the car over there and the race will have a go and Shell were there and and you would have stuck this so this is air freighted stick yeah, it on a plane so that's yeah. you know it's a big it's project a big deal yeah. yeah because we took all our own tyres and everything you know so and um, and then we had Shell who, who were there the, the all the bosses of Shell saying yeah we'll sort of help you out of it and which they did it was unreal mm. and even the motor Tommy Smith the motorsport manager from Shell Australia, he went over there. He came over with us, and it was uh, it was a good fun trip. It's just a pity water pumps were in 
extremely short supply and the only guy that had them wouldn't give us one, so we had to suffice with what we had and it failed in the end and and uh, the thing started overheating, so... Had that not happened, you, you had them leaked. You had them smashed. Well, yeah, we were smoking them. It was really good. He's smiling again. <laughs> <laughs> the car that you took to Silverstone later on actually ended up becoming a Valvoline car. Now, mm-hmm. Customer deals are pretty common in supercars these days where someone might bring a sponsor and a, a, a wreck, a, a franchise, and come and engage a team to run the car for them out of their workshop or the like. So you were way before the the game yeah. here. With how did this all happen with Ray Lintott? Ray Lintott and Valvoline, yeah. and and that was one of your old cars, but it stayed in your workshop and you ran it, and yep. he just turned up and drove it. How did that all come together? Because well, you've got a big a, clash there of two oil brands, and how does that all? Well, work? yeah, it's sort of, but you know, never the two were fighting one another. To be quite honest, it, it wasn't exactly. Um, Peter Brock driving the car, so uh, I don't think it really had any impact on that side of things. And we had different people mm. that weren't involved in our team that were hired just to um, to operate for that vehicle. So it was a case of he approached you to do a deal to buy yep. a car and then said, yep. hey, actually, while you're yep. at it, I yeah. want to go a bit further with it. Yeah, Ray you know, was a keen competitor in those days and not only in there but also in the Target Tasmania and mm. all that sort of stuff, so... Mm. Uh, what else have you got, Will, in Sierra Land? Because well, you guys were renowned as having the fastest Sierras in the world and then for the final year of running them, Ross Stone comes along and yep. it was like they took another jump. Yep. So what what sort of magic did Ross Stone bring to those cars that year? Um, right, so Jimmy, to be quite honest, I think was really... Um, he understood... He understood the the mechanics of the whole thing, and so did Ross. Of, of front end set up with with a strut McPherson strut type front end and things like that, and and uh, they came along and we made a, a number of changes to the stiffness of the car with the roll cage. What more bars? More or bars. Yeah. yeah, not by comparison to what they are today. I can no. tell you, or even in a in the older supercars, but. Um, that plus the front end setup, where I end up going to court because Gunsmoke, do you remember Gunsmoke? Kevin Waldock, mm-hmm. privateer Sierra yeah. driver and former employer who, of Ross Stone. Correct. Um, who claims that he owned the position of the hole in the steering plate i.e. that it had been developed at his team. Exactly. And, mate, it's a plate with a fucking hole in it. Give me a break. I went to court. Like, I've never been to court in my life, not even for a traffic fine, you know. And I tell you what, it's a scary bloody thought. I can tell, I've can i never been to court before. So what, what are you being charged with here? Are you being sued that, or what's the... Yeah, that it was his IP that we were using. And I'm saying it's a hole in a plate, mate, you know. We went to court, honestly, and I'm, and you never really know. You could be 100% right and the feeling you get in there is that, shit, you know, this could go against me, you know. It's almost like that feeling when you're on the road driving along and a cop car goes past mm-hmm. and you think, oh, you know you're doing nothing wrong, yeah, but, you, but know, you go, hang on a minute. What's, yeah, and it was just 
really weird. And anyway, the judge said, oh, you, I've you got, I, I need to go and have lunch. Yeah, throw exactly, it out. mate. <laughs> I, the pub's open, you know. <laughs> but, you know, and that that took another step, and that that was a gun car, that you know, ninety-two car. I tell you, mm. when we went to Bathurst, that was fast. Well, you got pole, so yep. it must have been that was fast. Yeah, two twelve in a Sierra and Bathurst is no, yeah two twelve point eight nine eight. Yeah, there you yeah. go. <laughs> Even to the three decimals. <laughs> yeah, nothing wrong with your memory. Because yeah. <laughs> I remember Mike Raymond screaming about it. You know, yeah, just, and that was pretty quick. You know, and those old things around there. So. One of them. Yeah, I wouldn't like to be bolted in beside you for twelve. No, it was good though, and it was just a. A delightful car to drive, you know. It was like literally a Sunday drive. Well, it was. It just, the race was on a Sunday. It just, wasn't a nice Sunday. I know. Yeah, right? There was because there were certain punters around the place. We waved. He said, "Just wave back at them," you know, <laughs> coming out of the chase and that. You know, so. <laughs> All up, there were, as Will knows intimately because he's followed these cars really closely. There were six Dick Johnson racing Sierras. Mm-hmm. Five right-hand drive and one left-hand drive that we talked about. Which we converted to right-hand drive. Mm, yes, yes. Um, and some of the early cars ended up in the UK. Yep. Uh, Rob Gravett, who... Rob Gravett there, and Smith. And Mike Smith. Mike yep. Smith. Yeah. Yep. And... Um, who was a uh, radio, radio person. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Really yeah. high-profile dude. Yeah. yeah. So you had built a reputation pretty quickly as, well, those Johnson cars in Australia... They're pretty good. Yeah. So how does this all happen? That you, and how do you figure too? Um, what's a car worth to you when they want? It, we want one. We build us one. We'll buy one. Whatever, whatever. Uh, we sold them pretty cheap, actually. But oh, you know, mate, could have named your price at yeah, that time. Yeah, I know. But you know, obviously, when when you know what your budget is and how you operate, you think that everyone else is the same. But obviously not. <laughs> but they went on to win a couple of championships with that. Yeah, car over there, which Rob Gravett did, mm. and then he came out here and drove with us along with um, Jeff Allen. Jeff Allen, yeah, nearly won Bathurst. Yep, yep. They just needed to fix their seat for you. To... Anyway. Do you reckon they rigged the seat there so you couldn't get in it? Well, well poor Radisich. Well, you never know what he'd do, would you? Like the rat, <laughs> he just—they don't call him the rat for nothing. <laughs> no, not at all. It was just. Just one of those situations, and yeah, it was yeah another one that got away. But that don't matter. Mm. No, everyone's got one of them. Yeah, one of those stories of those Sierras. The one I, you... I, to be quite honest, though, I would have felt pretty ordinary, you know, jumping into a car that had been somebody else and commandeered somebody else's car, which I think is the wrong thing to do. You could do it under the rules. At under the, the time rules, you could. Others did it, and one bloke did it a couple of times yeah. and got a win. Other yeah. blokes did it and didn't yeah. get anything out of it. Yeah. But um, of those Sierras, you kept one, which was the '89 winner. Yeah. That was also the same car that you finished second in '92 and got pole in. Yep. That also finished second in 1990 when the seat wouldn't move. Yep. So that was a really pretty trick. Did car. four Bathursts and it yep. won once and had two seconds. So its strike rate was yeah. bloody good. So that's the one you kept in the collection. Um, did anyone try to buy that one? From you at the time, no. I guess everyone's going V8, no. so you don't need a Sierra. No. no one wants a Group A car. Exactly. So they're kind of worth nothing at the end I of the day. No, just it's like a big graph that it dropped and then it spikes back up later on. Well, we were talking about hindsight. You know, yeah, just, yeah. But a ripper car that was. It was really, really good car. And didn't you sell you sold one to Perth? I think Trevor Hine was. Trevor Hine. He bought all our spare parts and everything. Yep. Everything went 
one sale the whole deal. Boom, out the out, door. Out the door. Mm. So anyone who rang up wanting, oh, can you got any Sierra bits? Trevor Iron had the whole lot. Talk to him. Yep. yep. And, that's and he would have made a killing out of it. What else you got, Sierra Land, Will? One thing I've always wanted to ask about, like one of the most distinctive parts of the DJR Sierras was the, were those gold wheels. Oh, I love the gold wheels. They were so good. What, what a guy by the name of Keith Rage who worked um, in Adelaide, he was the... Um, they used to build wheels over there and these were magnesium wheels that... I saw these wheels or similar looking wheel on the... What they call the sapphires in the UK? Oh yeah, yep. And I thought, you know, they look pretty trick. So he designed the wheel, and and uh, we had them all made in uh, in Adelaide at uh, a guy by the name of Keith Drage, mm. and he uh, he did a great job of them too. They're really neat, and we sold them. Obviously, the Brock had them, and mm. a few other cars had them. So what? Um one of the things we have done when we did our HRT, we looked at all the liveries because a lot of team, uh, lots of different designers at Holden had designed the liveries. Yeah. Did you ever get involved in the paint schemes of the cars and what they looked like, or did you leave that to yeah, other people? And I stayed away from it a bit, but you know, I had a bit of a, a sort of say to it when Shell. We used to, we had a couple of, um, I don't know whatever you call them, sessions where you sit down and just talk. And see if something comes out of it, if you know what I mean. And bit of bench racing, almost a bit yeah, of a, a, well, an open you know, room no, this sort is of a, a. No, in Shell, in the boardroom at Shell, and with certain people, their marketing people, and and um, obviously Tommy Smith, the motorsport man, and he presented plenty of sashes to you over the years, oh, didn't he? And a ripper bloke, and still going too. Yeah, yeah. Oh, mate, I've got some stories about Tommy Smith. <laughs> <laughs> I get a feeling we cannot tell them. Yet. Oh, yeah, no, you can tell them. They, you know, they're, they're common knowledge, especially when they, they had the jelly wrestling at Winton that time. <laughs> that was at the pub at, at um, yeah, Winton. It was quite funny. I wasn't involved, of course. Oh, no, of course, of course. Yeah. But Dino was. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, funny ass. Oh, you just dubbed your brother in. Uh, Into the jelly, quite literally. No, it's funny ass. Well, just while we're on doing a bit of livery chat. Oh, I thought you were going to say while we're on jelly wrestling. So looking at all, like, had a chance to peruse the A&1 Images archive and have a nice close-up look at some of the cars from over the years. Another key feature of the Dick Johnson cars throughout the 80s, around the number, Mm. around the... Little oh, gold, gold trip. strip. Yeah, yeah, what was that about? I just it separated the number from the rest of the car, and it put a finishing edge around around the uh, the, the white square, you know. So, and cams were very. It took us a long time um, with cams to get them to accept the number styling. Mm. Cams were one. Seven. Straight. Mm. Yep. Straight line. Straight, straight, no, straight. No, no curvatures but, off the edge. But having something like that, you know, it took a long time to to get them to accept the fact that, you know, we've got to move on in life, you know. You can't look like the stick man, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like a 17. It is yeah, a 17. Yeah, yeah. You can see it's a how 17. Many, how many ways you can write 17? <laughs> yeah. And the Sierras... Um, are all still over at Acacia Ridge. That's where they were all. Yep, every single up. one were built there. And 
from the term that they were built by DJR, they would arrive as just a, a, an empty shell from Europe. From I yes. guess Belgium was yep. the Ford Belgium. They, they were all built. The RS five hundred were built in a place called Ghent. G H E N T. I think it is for those spelling a lot. Yeah, and um, but you talk about the liveries, and like I said, we used to sit down in Shell, and they would have these jamming sessions and and talk about you know what message you wanted to get out and all that sort of stuff, and and um, I said, well, that's why it went from ultra high to S H E double L, you know. Mm, that's right. Because Shell Ultra was the championship Shell Ultra, sponsor. Yeah. Shell Ultra High yeah. on the car. Yeah, it was just Shell, and the, you know, and then that was the Ultra High was a just a specific product, which was the like ninety seven octane stuff that mm. they run now, you know, mm. and um, that's why the the thing was what it is, you know, and then we went to Helix, and you know, mm. it was just a product thing, whatever they wanted to mm. to sort of focus on at that time. Dick, we've put the call out to our social media followers, we call it the Couch Racer Questions on the V8 Sleuth podcast. It's their chance to ask you a question or two. We've picked the best ones. You ready? I'm ready. It it won't hurt, I promise. Uh, Ian asks, is it true that you and Peter Brock were virtually 10 to 10 in your youth during a period of military service, unbeknownst to each other, that you figured out later on? That sounds true, doesn't it? It's correct because uh, the company that I was in at that point in time and we were the very first intake. So this was all very new to the whole system. And this is late 60s? Yep. No, mid, no more. Mid-60s. Mid-60s. Yeah, yeah. And uh, this is 65 or six, 66, I think. Yeah, 66, 67. Um, or mid, mid to mid anyway. Mid-65 to mid it was anyway, I think, yeah, it was because mid-65 to mid-67 is when um, I was in national service because it started in July or something in 65 and we were at uh, – our basic training was at Kapuka, which was outside Wagga Wagga, the coldest arsehole of a place I've ever been to in my entire <laughs> life. Um, and we were in these – and I'm telling you why it's cold. We were in these tin igloo-style – uh, accommodation and we were here and then they had they had a series of them this way and then they had a series of them that way and and I was I was in the the mob that were here and Brock was in the mob that was there so um, all of maybe cup what 20 meters 30 meters 40 meters oh, 10 meters 30 meters 20 to 30 meters if that yeah it's it's hilarious isn't yeah, it? it's uh, unbelievable yeah. how and ironically, you know, Brock and I, to the day, he was two months older than me. Yeah, 45, born yeah. in 45. Yeah. Yeah. To when, the day. When did he figure it out? Like, when did he realise? Oh, it wasn't until we sort of um, in, into the uh, 70s when when we started, when Brock was with, the, with Harry Firth and the dealer team and that, that we sort of even met each other. Mm. So to speak, in person. It's hilarious. You yeah. were that close together and you had no idea. Yeah. Um, Justin asks, you talk in your book about John Bow leaving the team when he went to cat yeah. racing. Uh, how long did it take for you two to reconnect as friends? Or did you need to reconnect as friends? Or was there a little bit of a period of 
Well, I suppose there was a bit of a bit of a sour taste in your mouth after a period, like for a period of time. But then you sit down and think about it. Say, well, you know, what's the use? Uh, you know, the only thing you get from looking backwards is a sore neck. So. I'd like a dollar for every time you've dropped that one. Yeah. But it's true. It's totally true. Yeah. Um, Malcolm asks, would the four-door, four-wheel drive version of the Sierra Cosworth or the Escort Cosworth have been good enough to be developed into a car as what the, the RS500 would have been? Gee, that Escort would have been pretty small. No, we, we were looking seriously when when the uh, GDR came out and uh, with Freddie Gibson and them sort of running that, uh, we seriously looked at um, getting the Sapphire, which was a four-wheel drive version of, with the same engine as the Sierra and that in it. But the the costs of a four-wheel drive car was just so so mm. like out of control. Yeah, we didn't have the uh, we didn't have the tobacco money, so no. We're only we're only poor pauper selling petrol. <laughs> I was waiting for that. Uh, Richard asks, how much did it affect your lap times and your driving when you did the in car chats on the the race cam in the in the TV days? Or oh, he actually says, can you recall any moments when they caused you grief? Well, I can remember when they tried to talk to you, but it wasn't their fault. When I think the rear wing the broke, rear wing Bathurst, broke coming in. That, that was, was Mike Raymond. He thought he'd caused me to spear off the road. It got my attention, but. Um, no, I didn't. It didn't really affect me at all. Um, JB used to drop a bit of time, but um, maybe I wasn't concentrating enough. I don't know on the driving. I don't know. <laughs> oh, but, it worked out okay. It's... Yeah, yeah. I never, never had any real issues. It was only that one where Mike was talking to me, or I never forget one. <laughs> there was one time when this the lady, the girl the presenter that was doing the midday show on Channel 7. And Mike Raymond really loved to push technology to the point where you'd be able to connect from the race car to somewhere else, you know, whether it be whether it be Murray during the buddy... Oh, Ian Murray on Cougar yeah, 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 and having a chat to him and all that sort of stuff. And... They were so far ahead of their time, those guys, with what they did. And and the guy, Charlie, who used to run the camera in the... For Channel 7, the race channel camera. 7, Charlie yeah. Busby was his name. Yeah, uh, Buzz, he used to sit in the in the uh, OB van and he'd be there steering the camera. With a joystick, uh, a that's little, how they used to move. Yeah, yeah, with a little, like, the you know, your Pac-Man thing. Well, it was you know? almost like an Atari joystick. Yeah, the Atari, the yeah, yeah, same sort of deal. Same era. And, and Charlie got in the shit big time because... Um, when I went through the trees, he wasn't recording. It's the greatest fail in the history of it's, motorsport television. He wasn't recording, and I think he got bollocks a bit about that. But but Mike Raymond was having a chat to me when I went sort of uh, with the broken wing. But the classic was this. I can't remember the presenter's name, who was doing the midday show, and Mike Raymond hooked me up with, with her while I'm. This is not during the race. This is during practice you know on the friday or something it was on the friday i think and she's saying uh, very seriously you know as naive as could be and says um they tell me um some men some 
males driving cars, they get extremely excited about when they go fast. Is it does does that happen to you? And I looked down and said, Well it hasn't happened yet. So and she lost it like they had to shut it down straight away because she couldn't handle it. <laughs> oh, you want to get that bit of footage, don't oh, we? Well, <laughs> we might have to go digging in the files. Um, John asks, how much fun was it doing the old shell ads with, with Barry Sheen? Barry was um, an absolute deviant. <laughs> <laughs> but a really, really fun, good, fun guy and... Like talk about two people that were like the the ads portrayed both people the way they should have mm. because that was just Barry the the way he was you know he's uh, just such a funny guy and he could say things to people say things to people that would be totally offensive in whether it be a male a female or whatever. And you'd think, Jesus, if I said that to somebody, I'd get a smack in the mouth. But not Baz. He could say it in a way that it would be totally accepted, you know. <laughs> and uh, just a funny guy. Uh, funny, funny guy. They're one of the most common things we get asked about by the fans is those those ads which were filmed in, what, the early 90s. So they've stood yeah. the test of time and people are still talking about them. Absolutely. And I, the thing was that we did... You talk about doing TV tops and tails and things like that. Um, and one afternoon, and it was pissing rain, and we we're at a shell servo with tarpaulins out over the top of us while they're trying to film doing these tops and tails for products and things like that. We did 14 of them in an afternoon. <laughs> That's covering some ground. It is. Yeah. And they couldn't believe it because we could just do it. Just do it, you know. Pros, total yeah. pros, mate. And you know some of the ones we did though that that were absolute classics. Was Shell used to have um, what do they used to call it? It was like a Seven Eleven on the side before they went to the the Shell shops. Ah, uh, uh, yeah, rings a bell. It's escaping me too. Because Wayne Caddack, he was the one worldwide who used to go around uh, opening these, and he was. The, the, he was the guy who put all that stuff together. Before he came to work for you? Yeah. Yep. And uh, he was instrumental in all those things happening. And we did a bunch of ads with those, about those shops, which were classics. Never released? never released? never hit the light of day because of, because of the fact that the, um, the concept got changed. So the ads are tucked ads away on were, a tape yeah, somewhere? Tucked away Could somewhere. Could be some classic gold for us to go oh. on. I wish sometime. I had them. I'm sure Shell would still have them somewhere. But no, we'll, we'll go dig in. Yeah. We like sleuthing. Uh, Warren asks, what's the Green's Tough paint colour called and was the Falcon and the Mustang the same green? Yep. <laughs> Falcon and Mustang the same green and it was a Renault colour. A Renault colour? A Renault colour. Hang on a minute. Pull the train up here. Yep. A Renault, a Renault colour. Did you, where did you get this green paint from? How did you come across this then? Um, well... When Ross Palmer wanted to paint it green because of the green stuff, right? We had Which was the product. Yeah, product. the product. Yeah. Were, you, you just, were you happy to go along with he was, that? Or? He was instrumental in changing the steel industry, you know, for good in a lot of ways where they were the pioneers of painting 
rotten old steel tubing, um, greasy steel tubing on the line and it had come out all painted at the other end and nice and clean and all that sort of stuff. And, and uh, when he wanted the green, I said, Ross, I don't paint that crap green. You've got that stuff. It looks like something that was, you know, a camouflage vehicle in the army, you know. <clears throat> so we went looking and we found this, um, this green, which is um, a Renault green number 17, would you believe? I think it is. No. Yeah. KC, we're still going to ask KC. He's got it down the back there. Keith Chesterton yeah, has been yeah. with you for so long and he's still he's here. He's been with me since and he's still here and he, he joined us in uh, 1967. Hasn't escaped. No. <laughs> um, uh, Dean asks, what's your daily driver? What are you driving around in these days? Me, I love it to bits and it's one of the best rigs I've ever had as far as you know, an, an all-round vehicle, is I got one of the uh, Ford Raptors mm. and is the it, Ranger Raptor. Is it pimped or have you kept it no, standard? No, no, she's standard. normal. Right. But honestly, one of the quietest cars I've ever driven on the road, even though it's got chunky-looking tyres and that, and it goes pretty good, but it is just the ride is unbelievable. With that Fox suspension in it, cool, cool, awesome Every, rig. Everyone else always asks us what the supercar drivers and supercar yeah. legends drive on the road. Now you know, mate, because it, the, the the thing that I like about it is that they don't they're not roundabouts anymore. They're straightabouts. <laughs> well, when you're that high, yeah. you can. Yeah. Uh, Oz Pacer asks, uh, do you wish you'd been able to do more races in Europe with the Sierra? Because you would have had a pretty good chance, judging by. What you did at Silverstone. It was only ever a one-off. There was no sniff of doing something else? No, it was just the, the, the one-off event. And I think that, um, like I said, a sort of an ego trip, but it wasn't. But I, I think it was mainly because then in 87 at Bathurst, I almost felt ashamed to be in Australia in the way they came out and made us look stupid. And I just wanted to uh, show the rest of the world, mate, that... Um, we're not stupid out here. We're pretty smart. <laughs> I reckon you did that. I reckon you did that. Mm. Uh, thank you to all our listeners who've sent in the couch racer questions because we had a truckload yeah, and it yeah, took yeah. us forever. <laughs> uh, we, we'd love to go through them all with you, but we simply can't can't get to them all. It's uh, it's just a, a case of how no, it is. No, I know, mate, because it's getting close to Jim Beam o'clock, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's always nearly Jim Beam o'clock. <laughs> no, you, know no, you know that. Never before five, mate. <laughs> no, that's fair, fair point, fair point. Um Another thing that we like to do here, we'll cover it off now, is the V8 Sleuth Top 10 Shootout. It's a fancy way of doing word association. Mm. So if I read out some names and some things, mm. you give me the first word that comes in your head. Now, some have proven to be pretty ordinary at this game on our podcast where they need mm. five or six words. They don't quite get the, the idea of it. But we'll let you have two or three if you need to get the added meaning yep. across. Okay. Ready? Yep. Roger Penske. Unbelievable person. Two words. That's a good start. Uh, Ryan Story. Smartest guy I've ever met. It's a few extra words, but I'll allow it. I'll allow it. Uh, Winston Cup. Oh, NASCAR. That's probably a bit of it. NASCAR, um, very different. True. Uh, Viscander. Great car. Mm. It's a pity I didn't fit in it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, bloody 
knees up around my ears and, you know. But other than that, it was all right. Yeah, built for midgets. Yeah, <laughs> most race cars are, aren't they? Uh, Stephen Johnson. Extremely underrated. Yeah, nice. Uh, Greg Hansford, we touched on him earlier. A ripper guy. Mm. Sadly missed too. Sadly. Very sadly missed. Uh, race cam. Motor racing at its best. <laughs> I love it. Uh, Peter Brock. Extremely fair. Mm. You've always said that, you two, yeah. about one another yeah. over the years. Uh, just one of the guys, you, you know, you, you knew damn well you had a fight on your hands, but it would be a fair one. Uh, track that no longer exists anymore. I know there's a few up in your neck of the woods that don't exist anymore that uh, were favourites, but Amaru Park. Very tricky. Mm. Never nice for big cars. Always better for small cars. Yeah, it was a goat track in, <laughs> in a lot of ways. I don't mean that disrespectfully, but you would never, ever be able to sort of get a licence for that place now. <laughs> the stop corner. Head on into a wall. Concrete wall. Like <laughs> just, hello. Yeah, no. <clears throat> no. Ask Bowie. How, how did in, you- in that Sierra... What happened with John Bowen this year? In, in bloody Lintotska. Oh, what happened there? Oh, he he had a big one coming into there. Oh, really? In mm. practice when mm. you guys would shake the car He was down. testing, yeah. Well, yeah, I wasn't there. But yeah, right. And ask Gary Rogers about it. I'll never forget that. I was in that race. Tirana. Yeah. I've got the vision of it. Mate, side on into that wall like that. The car, you look at the car front on. It was perfect on the on the driver's side. Then it went over like that and went straight like that. <laughs> Completely flattened. That was that was the Bob Jane A9X mm. that he ended up in yep. the fence there. Yeah, uh, no uh, concrete wall at the end of a straight. Uh, track safety these days. I'm not going to get a go. Yep. Uh, and the last one that comes to mind uh, with what comes to mind, John Bow. Great partner. Mm. That's the top ten shootout. You made it around. Did, did well. well yeah, go. no, no, you did good. You did good. Uh, DJ, thank you. Really good fun to sit down for the uh, this element of the podcast. Good stuff. Well, I'm, I'm glad you have uh, editing at your disposal. We'll do a little bit. Thanks yeah. again. <laughs> Cheers. Well, there you go. Thank you very much, Dick Johnson. We spent a whole afternoon with DJ chatting for our book on the 40 years of DJR and DJR Tim Penske cars. It was great to sit down with a legend of our sport and I think if you'd asked Will and I as young guys if we were going to be sitting in Dick Johnson's office talking to him about some of the glorious cars from his career we'd have thought you were nuts. But that's what happened. If you want to secure a copy of the book by the way, head to authenticcollectibles.com.au. You can pre-order it there to make sure you don't miss out when it's released in very early 2020. If that's too hard, head to our V8 Sleuth website, click on the store link and that will get you there as well. And if you love Dick Johnson and you love Fords, grab a copy of our Ford at Bathurst book with a photo of every single Bathurst Ford from 1963 to 2018. That's in the online store too. They are limited to just 2,000 copies. And by the way, the forward was written by a bloke called Dick Johnson. Now, if you're new to the V8 Sleuth podcast, make sure you check out all our past episodes. Don't forget to subscribe either through Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you like listening to your podcast. And please leave us a review. Tell us what you think of the show, who you'd like to hear in the future. Make sure you leave a review. Keep an eye on the website, all our social media channels for the next episode and all the stuff we've got going on. Until then, we'll see you again soon with the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Doric.
Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out.